Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. Bill Brewster quite literally wrote the book on DJing. Alongside Frank Broughton, Brewster penned the definitive history of the DJ, Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, and the ultimate how-to book, How to DJ Properly. Originally from the northern English town of Grimsby, a place that he says lived up to its name, Brewster trained as a chef before moving to London in the mid-80s. There, he found himself living in squats and discovered house music in the capital's gay clubs. He later moved to New York and experienced the dying days of the city's golden nightlife era, a time period that would eventually influence his own party, Lowlife. These days, Brewster is most readily associated with DJ History, a site that he started alongside Broughton that he describes as dance music's potting shed. All of this was up for discussion as RA Stephen Titmus spent time with Brewster in London late last month. Originally from Grimsby, which to me uninitiated is a town in the north of England, can you describe what it was like to grow up there in, in the 70s? Um, well, if you've ever seen the film Kez, uh, it's very similar to that. In fact, I found some footage of Grimsby in the 1960s and 1970s on YouTube today. And it's quite funny looking back at it because it really is like watching a 50-year-old episode of Coronation Street or something with, like, really out-of-date cars and, and men wearing hats everywhere and stuff like that. So it was kind of... It was extremely northern, extremely working-class, quite violent and probably a bit dull, although when you're a kid you don't have a sense of that, really. So it was sort of an all-right place to grow up in. It certainly wasn't the epicentre of excitement, that's for sure, but, you know, I managed to, you know, I had some good mates, we hung out a lot and did things that kids do, you know, got into mischief a bit, did a bit of nicking, got caught by the police a few times, um, went to football and started really getting into music from the age of about 10 or 11. The, the thing that really got me into music was going to the fair. In the, in the 60s and 70s, the fairgrounds used to sort of be the places where you went, if you lived in somewhere like Grimsby, it was the place you went to hear upfront black music. I didn't know that at the time, but I realised now that, that that's what was happening. So I heard things like... Um, 
uh, Monkey Spanner and Double Barrel, which were like kind of early reggae records um, at the fair for the first time. So we used to just go and hang out at the fair. And as it happened, it, it was the fair used to set up about 100 yards from my house. So we'd go there literally every night and just walk around listening to the music and trying to scrape some money together to have a go on a ride and stuff like that. So that was kind of my initiation into into sort of pop music and, and to a lesser extent black music. So what was it just the pop music of the era that you was kind of listening to, I guess? Yeah, I mean, when I was listening to music on the radio, I was an avid Radio 1 listener and I would listen to... I remember Johnny Walker was my favourite DJ on Radio 1. This would have been the early 70s when I was in the secondary school. Um, and it was just pop music, really. I mean, I listened to things like uh, glam rock, you know, so Slade, The Sweet, Gary Glitter... Obviously not supposed to mention his name now, but, you know, in those days we were all innocent. Uh, and then the, uh, the more kind of art, uh, glam side, David Bowie and Roxy Music, um, who I got into really through my, my one of my best mates, Andy, his sister Sandra, was three years older than us and she was a big Bowie freak. So I got into, I got into um, David Bowie through, through her, really and started buying his records. But then seeing people like Roxy Music and David Bowie on top of the pops was quite a transformative experience. And I went to the, the Bowie exhibition a few weeks ago and looking at the, those videos again of Driving Saturday and stuff like that, you can see why it would have an impact if you lived in quite a boring northern place because they look like spacemen that had come and landed from another world to entertain us. And you don't really get the sense of that these days with pop music, very rarely anyway. It must have been an absolute contrast to the to the background of Grimsby. Uh, absolutely, because I mean, my environment was almost entirely comprised of people who were either dockers or fishermen. And they're like, you know, they, they thought everything to do with David Bowie was basically Puff's work, you know, and they were extremely dismissive of anything that didn't have a short back and sides and a flat cap on it. So interestingly, though, although perhaps Grimsby wasn't the most happening place, the Sex Pistols did play there when you was there. Is that is that right? They did, yeah, but it wasn't planned. What happened was they, they'd been booked to play a venue in Lees called, I think, Ford Green, and it was around the time, it was shortly after the Bill Grundy incident on local TV in London, and suddenly they were getting banned from everywhere. And as a last-minute gig, they organised um, a date at the Cleethorpes Winter Gardens. And uh, and it was around the time that I'd been sort of getting into more um, more punky things. Like, I bought a Graham Parker record and stuff like that. So, not exactly punk, but the kind of beginnings of what became punk, I suppose. And then and then I went to see the Sex Pistols at the Winter Gardens, and then that, that was it. It was kind of a bit of a year zero for me. It was my first year zero. I've had a few since then, but... <laughs> but, yeah, that was... And it wasn't busy, obviously, because it had been organised at the last minute, and there was only one punk there, a guy called Patrick, who I later met and got to know who moved to Manchester and became an art student there but uh, he was the only guy that actually dressed like a punk in Grimsby and used to get beaten up absolutely routinely did you go down that road did you have any of the gear afterwards 
Um, I tried to, but um, I lived in a in a really strict Methodist household. So as long as I was living at my mum's house, there was no chance of that. You know, I might kind of tear a few stitches away from the corner of a school blazer or something, but that was about it. So kind of a subvertive punk, almost, yeah. Well, well, actually, I mean, there was no uniform for the first... I'd say for the first... Certainly in 1976, there wasn't much of a uniform. And things that people were wearing were more like kind of drainpipe, jeans, um, brothel creepers, and uh, and also those kind of plastic, you know, the plastic sandals you get the seaside. Jellies. Yeah, jellies. People used to wear them. Mohair jumpers. So, and a lot of it was kind of make do amend because there was no uniform. I guess if you lived in London and you could afford to go to seditionaries and sex and things like that, then maybe you'd have some Vivian Westwood clothes. But apart from that, most people just made it up. Sure. So forwarding on a bit, you know, you mentioned black music at the carnival. Um, but when was it? did it start becoming a bit more of a serious thing for you? Um, I, I would say, I mean, I kind of dabbled in it on and off between the kind of early 70s and the mid-70s. I, I had a couple of friends that I was at college with who were both gay and they took me to a Northern Soul all-nighter at Cleethorpe's Winter Gardens, which was the first time that I'd... It was the first time that I'd done illegal drugs and also the first time I'd ever been to, like, an all-nighter. Um... But even then, it kind of coincided with seeing the Sex Pistols and somehow the Sex Pistols seemed a bit more immediate and exciting to me. So it wasn't really until about 1980, 81 that I started seriously getting into it. And it was really through bands like 23 Skidoo and A Certain Ratio and also meeting a guy called Roy Bainton who was a, who's been a bit of a musical mentor for me over the years. But he was about 16 years older than me. He owned the local record shop in Grimsby. and But he also had an amazing collection of records like he had all kinds of jazz records and funk records and things like Tower of Power and um, Graham Central Station so sort of discovering all of rifling through his record collection at the same time as listening and reading interviews with 23 Skidoo and a certain ratio we're kind of name checking you know Fela Kuti and Cameo and Spunk and all of these bands so it's through that really that I started getting into it more seriously. Sure. Was was there much impetus to go out to nightclubs? Obviously, you mentioned Northern Soul, but was there more kind of black music clubs at that point or was that later? In Grimsby, no. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd sort of moved down to London between 77 and 1980 and then I moved to Switzerland um, for two years, got back the end of 81. I lived there through 1980 and towards the end of 81 because uh, I'd been working as a chef. Um and I came back to Grimsby because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just knew that I didn't really want to uh, be a chef for the rest of my life because it was hard work. Um, so I was kind of, I came back there to just try and work out what it was I wanted to do. And as soon as I came back, I started a band and the band got a record deal. And um, we put out a couple of records and um, did a bit of touring and supporting other bands and got a bit of a name for ourselves, played on Peel and all that kind of stuff. What was your role in the band? I was the singer, songwriter, and I wrote all the lyrics, you know, some of the songs. Um, yeah, I mean, I actually found a CD of all of our demos and releases and stuff the other day, and it was quite interesting listening to it because it was nowhere near as appalling as I thought it was. It was actually quite good, apart from my singing, which is truly really appalling. Um, but a around the same time, my father moved to Cookridge in Leeds um, to take up a new job, and I used to go over with a couple of mates and we'd kip on his floor for the weekend and we'd go to the warehouse in Leeds, 
uh, when uh, my guy called Ian Dewhurst was DJing there. And that was the first time that I'd sort of heard music played without talking and without a microphone and also mixing as well, which I'd never heard before. Uh, and I also used to hitchhike over to Nottingham because I had a mate at college there. And we'd always go to the garage, uh, which um, Graham Park uh, was the DJ there. Um, and we used to go and watch him play. And at that time, it was before house music. So he was playing more like um, hip hop uh, and electro mixed in with other bits and mobs as well. So I was sort of getting into it a bit more seriously uh, then. But I was still kind of listening to some rock music and indie music as well, I suppose. So I guess that was kind of like almost like the electro funk era, kind of Greg Wilson, that that kind of era as well. Absolutely, but yeah. I, I had no idea about electro funk and stuff like that because I, I wasn't buying blues and soul. I was buying Enemy, and so I was kind of really, you know, there was a lot of black music coverage in the Enemy in the eighties. So I, it was really my bible. I tried reading blues and soul a few times, but it was really badly written, and I was kind of into. I sort of aspired to be a writer, I suppose. And so I was kind of more interested in reading good writing about music than reading bad writing about good music. Do you know what I mean? I, I didn't mind reading yeah. the NME writing about bad music because they wrote about it well. Um, so for me, it was more it was more instructive for me to, to read really good writers writing about music that wasn't necessarily that good. Because you're in as a writer was originally as a fanzine, a football fanzine writer. Is, is that right? Yeah, yeah, sure. absolutely. Can you tell me a little bit about that? That was... Um, that's when Saturday comes, the name of the title. Yeah, it's still and it's still going as well. Um, what happened was in early '87, I moved back to London, and in September '87, I started a degree course as a mature student. And um, one of the early issues of When Saturday Comes, about issue number eleven, uh, advertised for a slave. Um, it said slave wanted and then there was a little bit of writing under these saying you know basic office duties and all that kind of stuff and their office was really near to my college so um so I, I rung them up and said look you know I'll be your slave and uh, I came in and met them and I think they kind of liked the idea that I supported quite a shit football team because they were Chelsea and Everton supporters and, and I supported Grimsby so they kind of I think they felt a slight empathy towards me because I didn't support a very good football team and the idea of when Saturday comes was this kind of equality of equality of coverage so you were just as likely to read a, a, an article about Gateshead as you were about Paul Gascoigne that was kind of a, a, the, the whole ethos of the magazine was it was just about interesting stuff about football so it didn't have to be about this was before the Premier League but it didn't have to be about what was then known as the big five so you know Everton Spurs Man United Liverpool that a lot um, and I gradually got more and more involved in it over the over the subsequent two years I was still going to college nobody was earning any money from it but it reached a point um, at the end of 1988 I think it was 88 I think it was the end of 1988 where there was kind of like, I, I was supposed to go to France for a year. It was part of my degree course. And I really felt confident that the magazine was going to really happen and get big. Because um, at the time we were maybe selling eight or 9,000 copies and nobody was drawing a wage from it. We didn't take advertising. We were against advertising. It was all really absurd in a way. Um but And obviously, no one's ever going to make money on a magazine unless they take advertising, which obviously we eventually realised. Um, so 
but what what we did was we organized a trip to um albania um to see england play albania and this was when albania was a communist country and we used a a communist travel front organization called yorkshire tours who organized this trip with 55 football fans and we got so much publicity from it. We were on like News at 10. I was on Pebble Mill at 1 a couple of times. And it was just preposterous. We just got so much publicity. And basically the magazine circulation doubled in about eight weeks. I mean, it went from like eight or 9,000 to 21,000 in about three or four months. It was incredible. So that was the kind of tipping point when suddenly we, we actually were able to draw a small wage from it. Fantastic. One thing I find really interesting about that era of football journalism, and to an extent music journalism, is there was a real sense of humour running through a lot of it. Um, I find that, is, is that something that really influenced you as, as a writer personally? Yeah, well, the, the person who influenced me most as a writer was Danny Baker uh, when he was writing at The Enemy. He um, used to be effortlessly funny, but also he he had good taste in music as well. So it was a kind of mixture of him. You listened to him because you kind of respected his taste, but he made you laugh at the same time. And so he was an enormous influence on me, much more so than any football writer. Because the thing was, prior to the fanzies, there was no humour in football writing. Football writing was actually quite boring in a lot of ways. That's not to say there weren't good football writers, because there were. You know, guys like Paddy Barkley and, and Phil Shaw and people like this had been writing well about football for a long time. But it just was a bit, um, it was a bit reverential and a bit soulless, I think. And I think fanzines really helped change the, the, the way that football was presented you know, all of I think it all changed because of football fanzines. I really do. I think we really contributed a lot to how football is perceived now and and how it's presented and the amount of coverage it gets in the newspapers. It never got anywhere near that amount of coverage before. Well, I guess it also had a knock on effect for, to music coverage as well, with things like you know Boys Own and you know the Herb Garden that kind of grew out of some kind of fanzine. They, yeah, too. I mean they, they. Yeah, I mean I suppose it's part of the same continuum, really. That those kind of things were happening around the same time. I, I think it's just that, gen, you know, a generational thing of people wanting to kind of stamp their feelings about stuff. And eventually they all get kind of um, co-opted into the sort of mainstream, I suppose. So maybe swinging back just to the music for a second. Um, so in the you know, mid-80s, you're living in London. You was living in a squat, I believe. Was that, is that right? Um, yeah, I lived in... I lived in um tower block in, in trendy hackney wick which wasn't very trendy in 1987 it was um there were five tower blocks the one i lived in was called hannington point and uh, they'd all been condemned and the only people left in them were either old people that couldn't be asked to move out until they were ba basically being uh, detonated or students from the polytechnic of north london which is where i was at college so we initially paid rent in one of them and then we realised that actually it was so much easier to just break in and squat them because nobody cared. They were going to be demolished. So we, we kind of lived in them rent-free for two years or more, I think. And we used to have parties. Every time they every time they demolished a, one of the tower blocks, we'd have a, a demolition party and we'd kind of get beers and take photos and stuff like that. I've got photos at home somewhere, actually, of one of the building coming down. But it's completely different. I went back to Hackneywick recently looking for venues for parties, actually, and uh, I, can, I can hardly work out where, where everything is. It's all really changed, so it's, it's actually quite hard to, to see where it was that I lived because it's all been built on and redeveloped in a much nicer way. 
So were you going out to clubs much of the time? Uh, yeah, in hu- yeah, hugely. That's really because Kiss was flying then. Um, I was going to uh, a lot of warehouse parties, a lot of kind of squat type parties, things like um, Shaken Finger Pop, and even stuff like the Locomotion, which was this kind of pop version of a rare groove club run by Wendy May. It was called Wendy May's Locomotion. It used to be on at the forum every Saturday. My girlfriend at the time really liked this place, so I used to get dragged down there quite a lot. But I did go to quite a lot of um, like soul-to-soul stuff um, at the Africa Centre, but also they were doing things like they used to do a party down Curtain Road, I think it was, in Shoreditch. This was when Shoreditch was quite derelict, really. Um, so, yeah, I was going out a lot. It's quite interesting because when I've spoke to people like Terry Farley um, about the slow take-up of house music in London during the period. He says, no, we didn't really need house at that time. It was so, it was so going off in London with the rare groove and you know jazz funk and stuff like that. Was was that right? or? I, I think he's completely right, actually. I mean, I, in fact, when I first heard house, I hated it. I just, the, the idea of playing loads of the same kind of record one after the other was like, what the hell? I, I went to see Mark Moore. In fact, a mate of mine called Adrian used to be the warm-up DJ at um, the uh, fridge in Brixton. And he warmed up for Mark Moore. And then Mark Moore came on and just played House. And I was like, what is this? I just didn't get it. I'd actually bought a few House records already by then. This was summer of 87. Uh, but... I didn't see them particularly as house music. I didn't really know what house music was. But when I heard that, I thought, I don't really like that. I don't like it one after the records, one after the other like that. I just didn't get it. And also, all the things that I went to just seemed like a lot more fun to me. Um, so I kind of totally blanked it for the next year and a half, really. And then um, in... 1989, I got dumped by my girlfriend and my girl, my ex-girlfriend, the girlfriend before that one, had been dumped by her boyfriend. So we kind of consoled each other a little bit, started going out clubbing together a lot. We'd go shopping for clothes on a Saturday afternoon and then we'd meet up and go to a different place. And then she'd already been to this club called Troll, which was a gay acid house club at the Sound Shaft at the back of... at the back of the... Fr- uh, not the fridge, the back of Heaven. And... Um, She'd basically been grooming me to take me there. She'd gone to a few kind of like acid house light clubs. And and then finally, after about the fourth or fifth week, she's like, I'll take you to this other club next week. And I think it had been a plan all along. Well, I'll take him to these places that aren't very mad just to get him used to, the, to a bit of madness. And then I'll take him to Troll and hopefully, you know, he'll be ready for it. And then she took me to Troll and then said... Do you want to do? Do you want to do some ecstasy? I was like, yeah, all right, I'll try it, and that was it. I think I went to troll every week for about another two years, every Saturday without fail. Absolute epiphany. Complete, complete epiphany. Yeah, I mean, it just was. Uh, it was just an amazing club. It it was the kind of um, it was like the clink street or or the shum of the gay scene. It was just a really, really good club. It was like, you know, everyone mixed together. There were like kind of gay hairdresser hooligans. And then there were also like uh, people like Rupert Everett and uh, Margie Clark and people like that going there. It was just, you know, there was a really good mix of people. It was mainly gay, but it wasn't completely gay. It's probably about 20% straight, 80% gay. It was the only place, because heaven didn't let women in at that time. Um, and there was a passage, you could go into heaven if you wanted, but you had to be a man to go in there. So they had someone on the door to stop women getting in. Uh, so there were some women there as well. Not loads, maybe 
20% of the people there were women and out of them maybe 10% of them were were you know half of, half of the women there were probably gay so it was a real mixture of people but it was just really friendly it was really friendly and the music was bonkers you know a kind of mixture of sort of italo disco uh, italo disco italo house um kind of belgian stuff some of the kind of more hoovery frank de wolf sounding records some you know and then things like where love lives by Alison limerick and stuff like that so it was, it was a, i suppose typical music of the era you know there was it wasn't as as uh, split up as it is now it got really diffuse after about the end of 91 where you suddenly got drum and bass you know what became hardcore and stuff like that prior to that essentially everyone was playing from the same playlist of records so that was your entry to house music. So um, obviously that went on for a few years till 91. Did you start going to other like clubs in London then? I heard Ministry of Sound in, in the real great era was, was a big influence on you as well with Danny Yeah, Tanaglia. I did. Well, what happened was um, myself and my ex-girlfriend I'd been going out clubbing with and another old mate of mine from Grimsby, we all got a flat together. And then I got a housing association flat. I'd, I'd been on a wait list one. So I moved out of that flat in Islington and moved into a place in Bethnal Green. But the person that moved into the flat was Joey Negro. Um, this was in like 1990. So, so I got to know Dave Lee really well. Um, and I'd be going back there because it was two of my mates that were there and then, you know, and I was I'd been writing about dance music for Mixmag by then because they'd called When Saturday Comes and we'd got talking and they'd found out that I'd been going clubbing so I started doing stuff for them from about uh, 1990 so we sort of had a, a bit of common ground, you know, he, he was in Mixmag a bit, I was writing for it a bit um, and we just got on and, and he started playing me loads of disco records and stuff like that because the only disco stuff I knew about really before house music was kind of the more commercial end of it, D-Train, Shalimar, things like that, the kind of obvious stuff. Didn't know so much about, you know, Sal Soul and stuff like that. But um, it's through Dave, really, that I got into disco, listening to disco. Pretty, pretty good person, I'd imagine, to educate you about disco, Joey Negro. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very good. So we, we uh, you know, we just had a... We spent a lot of time together, me and him, between 90 and 94 when I moved to New York, just kind of basically skinning up, getting stoned and listening to records. Not just disco records, like any new records that were going about. I'd bring records around and say, have you heard this? And, you know, we just kind of swapped information, I suppose. Like he'd turn me on to loads of stuff. I'd turn him on to some stuff as well. So the move to New York was obviously a big point for you. Um, why did you move over there initially? Well, in 93, I left when Saturday comes and because I'd been working as a stringer for Mixmag and I got on really well with the guys at Mixmag, they uh, offered me a job working for DMC. Now, originally, they, they were, they were going to launch um, a comedy magazine. Uh, David Davis, who'd been the editor of Mixmag, was leaving Mixmag to start this comedy magazine and they wanted me to be his assistant editor. Um, and they did launch it, actually. I can't remember what it was called now, but um, they did launch it. It didn't. It lasted about, I don't know, 10 issues. But anyway, I didn't really want to do it, but they offered me a job as editor of Mixmag Update. So I was editor of Mixmag Update, which then was quite an influential weekly trade magazine. Only 16 pages, but it had a buzz chart in it that was really important at the time. Everybody wanted to be in the buzz chart if they had a record out and... 
Um, I did that for a year, and then a guy on Adele who was living in New York and running the DMC office there wanted to come back to England, and they just offered me the job and said, do you want to go out there? And uh, they told me on the Friday, and I had to tell them on the Monday whether I wanted to do it or not. And then a week and a half later, I tried to move out. So it was like, it, it was ridiculously quick. So you found yourself in New York in 95 94, yeah, 94. Early, early 94. So it must have been a pretty great time to be there as someone who got into clubbing. You know, that's pretty much some of the last golden era of, of New York clubbing, I would imagine. Yeah, I'd been, I'd been twice before. I mean, the first time I went was uh, 91 and the second time I went was 92. So I'd sort of been a bit before and, and got a taste for it. Spent a lot of money on records and going to record stores when I was over there. In fact, the first time, so much so, I had to ship them over uh, by sea because I couldn't afford to pay. I couldn't afford to carry them. Um, I think I bought like about 250 records the first time I went there. So it was preposterous, really. Um, so I moved over there and it was still good. It was definitely still good. But you, you did have a sense that it was on a general downward slide from where it had been in the 1980s. I suppose the peak was probably the late 70s through to the kind of late 80s and until the Paradise Garage closed. And from there, it's sort of been a, a semi-slow decline until, until it became quite precipitously bad over the last 10 years or so. But it was still good. There were things happening, um, in particular the Sound Factory. That was the, the thing that we went to a lot. And, and also, I met Frank Broughton out there. Frank and I grew up in the same in the same area he went to school in Market Raisin which is just down the road from Grimsby and uh, and I went to school in Grimsby so we only we kind of grew up about 20 miles apart and we actually had mutual friends but but we met in New York and he and I started hanging out together a lot with there was a little gang of us that included Adam Goldstone who was in a group called Superstars of Rock and who was then working for Francois Kevorkian and then a guy called Bruce Tantum who's now a Time Out Club's editor um, but we were sort of a little posse and we used to go to the sound factory every week and then just kind of hang out and go clubbing to loads of different other things as well. Um, yeah, it was brilliant. It was really good. So what was so great about the sound factory? You know, it's a legendary club, but um, I guess a few people listening to this might be old enough to have been there. Well, what was great about it was it was the same DJ every week. They never had guest DJs. The sound factory was Junior Vasquez, so... Um, it opened at around uh, midnight every Saturday night and it closed anywhere between midday and two or three in the afternoon. So basically Junior played for between 12 and 15 hours every week um, and it was only him. There was nobody else. There wasn't a warm-up DJ. There were no guest DJs. It was Junior. It was Junior's house. So you really felt like you built up a relationship with him and what he did and you, you felt the kind of pulse and the changes of of each evening um, and there were kind of narratives that that were woven through the period of the course of a night because he could do that because he'd been playing all night so he might play a snatch of a record at two in the morning and then at four in the morning he'd play another little bit of it and then at six in the morning he'd play another little bit of it and then finally maybe at eight o'clock He'd play all of it and the crowd would explode because it's just that thing of making people wait, making people wait. Make... It just was an incredible club, you know. You really felt that you had a relationship with him. 
And you don't get that with when it's like constantly guest DJs and stuff like that. It's just, it is a different thing. I mean, I like, you know, I, I run parties and I have guest DJs and I really like doing that. But, you know, it, there's nothing can be a club with a DJ, the same DJ every week. And I think actually British club culture has destroyed that in New York because when the Sound Factory closed in early 95, it reopened as Twilo and then they really promoted Sasha and Digweed and people like that. Now they're great DJs, but they're not New York DJs. And it, what it did was it actually eroded the notion of what New York DJs were. And then it became about guest DJs. So I, I, and I felt that that kind of idea of one DJ playing a club every week was actually quite a special thing. And it's just a bit of a shame that it doesn't exist anymore. Absolutely. And I guess that lineage dates back to things like the loft and there's a very, very linear progression of that one DJ thing. But that more or less was the idea for your book. Was it not the um, last night uh, DJ saved my life the, to tell that story um, progression? Yeah, I mean, Fra Frank and I, within a couple of weeks of meeting, had sort of said, wouldn't it be great to write a book about all this music? That, what what was interesting I mean I think really the big inspiration for it was was some of the people we met at the sound factory there were there were these gay there was this gay couple that lived in upstate Connecticut it's sort of about a hundred mile drive from New York but they'd lived through the disco era um, and they'd survived one of them was a truck driver and I can't remember what the other one was called but one of them was called Scotty and I can't remember the name of the other but they used to tell us stories about going to the loft or going to the garage or going to this club and um, what amazed me about New York not just them but everybody in New York who, who was from that generation they they knew who'd broken every record and I'm like how do you know who broke that record but there was this kind of oral tradition in New York that had passed on this information. So someone would say with great authority, you know, well, Slang Teacher by Wide Boy Awake, that's that's a jelly bean record. And you're like, how do you know that? How do you know that's a jelly bean record? But they did. And and so it was that's what really inspired us to write Last Night a DJ Saved My Life was was to document all of that, it felt like it was such an amazing amount of great information that it, more people should know about it. And and it's weird that it took two English guys to do it when, when there were all these really good New York writers there, had it right in front of their nose and somewhere, or the, maybe it was too obvious and too close. But, you know, to us, it seemed like this is an amazing thing and it, it's a story that needs telling. Absolutely, and you took it all the way back to the very first kind of New York DJ, which was Francis Grasso. Yeah, um, I mean, once you start, then you have to kind of... I mean, our attitude was, if we do it well, we'll pretty much stop anyone else from doing it, which sounds a bit mean, but um, what I mean is if you do a really good job in the first place, it'll just make it really difficult for someone to come along and do it again without them being compared unfavourably to what you did. That doesn't mean to say no one's going to come and do it. They more than more than likely will do it at some stage. But the thing is, once you get there first and you do a good job, I think it's hard for them to not be compared to you and what you did. Absolutely. So I, I guess you, well, I know that you interviewed an absolute ton of DJs for, for that for that book. Who was your favourite interviewee? Oh. You know what? I reckon I reckon the, the one of my favourite interviews I've ever done, uh, which... 
unusually I did with Frank. We normally we'd split up and just because you can cover more ground if you, you know, he'd it like he'd go and do the hip hop DJs during the day and I'd go and track down loads of old disco queens. Um, but one of the best interviews we ever did was with um Fabio from Fabio and Groove Rider, which we did in the Radio One building, and it was just such a brilliant interview he's just a great storyteller that's why it's good um and i i it you know i think it's up on the website if you go and have a look on dj history go and read it because it just really leaps off the page every answer is a little story and the stories are great i mean you know just he's a, just a great raconteur and another great person was uh, steve de Quisto, who sadly is no longer with us who not only told us some great stories but also put us on to loads and loads of people from the disco era. So someone that really generously helped us a lot. So out of all the people you interviewed, did you find something common between all these kind of DJs that had really kind of made it to a professional level or broke new ground? Was Did you find any, any similar lines going through all the different DJs? I think you do, yeah. It's that kind of firstly... A, pa- a passion for music that, that starts often very, very early on with either tinkering about with radio sets and record players or, or starting to collect records very early on. Um, but just that kind of passion for, for wanting to spread music. I mean, essentially what a good DJ is, is a, is a salesman or a saleswoman. What they want to do is play brilliant music and hopefully get people to say, yeah, this is brilliant. Let's go out and buy it. I mean, that's really, you know, if people come up and ask you what a record is, that's, that's your job done because you're introducing new music to people. And that's why, that's what I love about the job. And I think that's a thing that runs through every single DJ, you know, is that idea of, uh, with a few exceptions, I think people like um, Grandmaster Flash, for example, were, were genuinely revolutionary in what they were doing. He was driven by kind of reinventing DJing in, in a quite extraordinary way. So I think someone like him, he's beyond, he's beyond just being a music salesman. I think he was something else. Absolutely. I think my personal favorite from the book was, was the story of Francis Grasso and, you know, how you tracked him down and he didn't want to speak to you and stuff. And can you perhaps talk about that? Because I'm not sure that everyone would know who, who he even was, but he's a very influential okay. guy. Yeah. So Francis Grasso is, I mean, he's not the first DJ, but he's the first DJ who you would recognize if you heard recordings of him who turned DJing into a performance that was led by him as a personality. So it was about his taste in music and how he put the records together. And prior to him, it was more about DJ servicing the dance floor. Whereas with Francis, it was more about a performance as a DJ playing music uh, selected by him. But also he was mixing records, probably... Uh, roughly in a way we would understand now, you know, with BPMs, maybe things coming out of time a bit because the equipment was very rudimentary and it was all live drummers then. But Francis um, was, uh, first started playing at places like Salvation and The Haven and, and, and clubs like that and then uh, became famous at the Sanctuary and um, other clubs. He, he opened his own club called Club Francis um, but he got beaten up by mobsters and had his basically his face rearranged. Um, I've got a photo of him from 1979 where you can see even then that his face has been kind of you know rearranged a bit. And by the time we met him, 
Um, he'd largely become a forgotten figure. He wasn't uh, DJing. He hadn't worked in music uh, very much. And in fact, he was, uh, he was working a lot for a guy called Michael Capello, who'd been another very successful DJ in the, in the, in the gay disco era in the early 70s. He was essentially, I think, just working as a construction worker. And he was in a bit of a state. His teeth were missing. And um, he'd say, he said a few times in uh, the interview, if it wasn't for my dogs, I wouldn't be here, you know. And unfortunately, I think less than 18 months after we interviewed him, he killed himself. Um, so it was very, it was a very sad end to, to a revolutionary person's life. But often you find the people that really change things are not the people that make the money from those changes. They're the people that set them in place for future generations, but they're not, they're not the ones, unfortunately, that reap the, the benefits from it. It's the same in hip hop. You look at all the kind of, you know, uh, Charlie Chase and all of these guys that were really revolutionaries in well, New York. Cool Herc or... Yeah, Cool Herc, all these. They've made no money from it. And it must be really galling to see 50 Cent living in, you know, some massive mansion while Cool Herc's still hustling for, for dimes. And it was the same with Francis Grasso. The only good thing that came out of it, I suppose, was we got a really lovely email from um, some of Francis's family just thanking us for documenting what he'd done in our book because it came out shortly before he killed himself. So I suppose we've done, you know, we did some service to remember him. So, you know, it was, it was good from that point of view. So aside from the book, which obviously was a real big career changer for you 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 also done a lot of DJing in in New York around the time as well um, yeah started the low life parties and um, can you tell us a little bit about those yeah well um when the sound factory closed which I think was March 1995 we didn't really have a, a regular hangout to go to on a Saturday night there were a lot of kind of things happening but they were all a bit intermittent there was no like real good weekly party that we felt we could go to so we decided to do a party in Frank's house. And Frank was living in a, in a really big brownstone in Harlem with a load of crazy queens. And his house was sort of party-shaped. You kind of work, you, you walked up this stoop and walked onto the kind of, I suppose, the ground floor. It wasn't exactly on the ground floor. And it had this beautiful big living room that went right through, window at one side, window at the other. And even with a DJ booth and speakers in it, you could get 100 people in it to dance. And then, and then he had a basement and we set up another little sound system in there. And this being Harlem, it's the kind of place where you can put sound systems in houses and no one's going to do anything. So we threw a party and it went really well. Then we got loads of people coming down. We didn't charge any money. We made some food and gave it out. It was all kind of a bit a bit like the loft and, and a bit like the sound factory, I suppose. That's kind of what we were inspired by. Um, and then we did three more parties in that house. And then we did two in a loft in the East Village. I think we did five in total and then... And at the end of 96, we, we moved back to England. And then we had a, a little break. And then in March 1997, we threw the first party in England, which was on Kingsland Road, right near to Shoreditch in our mate Skelly's loft. That was the first party we did there. We did three there. And in fact, we didn't have a name. It wasn't called Low Life until... I think we'd maybe done eight or nine parties before we actually gave it a name. It just didn't have a name. It was just a thing that me and him did. 
Bill and Frank's party. Yeah, it was. They all had a different theme, so they were called different things. I think the first one was called a party in a big house. So it was, uh, but we we called it Low Life after this book by Luke Sonte, uh, which is a about the history of the underworld in New York up to the start of the twentieth century. It's a great book. It's brilliant, uh, and it just you know. Uh, were kind of attracted to the underbelly and the seedy side of life, and it just felt like an appropriate name for the party. So what do you think makes a great party after throwing so many and going to a lot of really influential ones over the years? Um, well, it's that kind of indefinable mix of really good people. Um, I think the, the most important thing is the people, really, you know, and people and good music. Everything else is sort of slightly secondary. If you've got great music and you've got really great people, everything else falls into place. You know, it's not the end of the world if you've only got a little red light bulb in the ceiling, if you've got great people and a great sound system. If you can't mix, it doesn't matter if you've got great music and great people. So those two things are the real crucial ingredients. And what we've always done with Low Life is, is never really publicised them. Um, we've always kept them quite low-key. We've never promoted them in the normal way. And actually, that's strangely been the key to our success, is people kind of clamoured to go to them precisely because they didn't know, you know, that you had to find out about them. You had to know somebody who knew us, knew us to know about them. So um, that's helped us enormously, really. But it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't a kind of a, a policy. It's just how it happened. It was literally, we're throwing a party. We told our mates and our mates came. Then we threw another party and our mates came and they brought some of their mates and it kind of grew from that. So it's really been word of mouth. I mean, that's been the success of it, really. A bit like when we, you know, we've just, as I told you earlier, before we started the interview, we've just come off uh, a field in Dorset having done our first festival uh, which we called Country Life and again we didn't uh, advertise it and the tickets sold out in 10 hours you know we sold 450 nearly 500 tickets in in the day we put them on sale so you know it's just trying to keep it special and I think the way to keep it special is to just not spam people endlessly because that's the problem with social media now is you're just bombarded with invites to everything. I mean, I, you know, when I look at the little globe in Facebook of all the invites, I've been... I, I, I can't remember even the last time I looked at it. I never look at invites. So I think that says all you need to know about the oversaturation of promotion, really. So I think for good parties, the best way to start is always invite your mates. Even if it's only 50 in a wine bar in Rochdale, it's a way to start it, you know. All there's no other advice I could give people to start a party, a good party, is to just get your mates down there, and if it's good, they'll invite their mates. That's how you build a good party. So another thing I wanted to talk to you about was DJHistory.com, the website you eventually set up to promote the DJ History book. Yeah. Now, what I find fascinating about that website is that it very much has taken on a life of its own. That's away from the original idea of promoting the book with the forum and things like that. It's almost, I guess, the first disco social network always in some ways, I, I might say. Um, can you tell me, can you just tell us a little bit about what, what, the, what the forum okay, and that well, side of things well, is? Originally, we set up djhistory.com uh, shortly after Last Night at DJ Saved My Life uh, was published. 
that was published in October 99 and we set the set the website up in early 2000 but we added a forum 10 years ago in May 2003 and that's really what changed it was the the forum and basically I we, we kind of redesigned the site a little bit and and started adding a bit more content but essentially what happened was I told all of my record collecting mates I've got this forum why don't you come and hang out on it and it grew from there. It was weird. It's And it just kind of took a life on of its own. And like loads of people who've done very well subsequently, like Todd Terrier, uh, Prince Thomas, or, you know, all of the Norwegians were all hanging out on it every day at one stage. Uh, obviously, they're quite busy now. They don't do it very much these days. But it, it's, it became a bit of a kind of a worldwide community for for the kind of nerdier, disco-y, Balearic end of the kind of record-collecting, DJing market. It was kind of, I suppose, the place where if you were into playing Cliff Richard records at the wrong speed, you'd go and hang out on DJ history. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, um, a top um, forum threads that I've seen on there include, is Phil Collins Balearic? <laughs> and what is your favourite Italo disco record to play on the wrong speed? So we're, we're getting into like serious nerd territory here, but do you feel that level of nerdism is, is a good thing? Or um, Well, you should speak to the partners of the DJs. Um, generally speaking, obviously, when there's loads of them together, it isn't. It's quite an unnatural environment. I kind of regard it as the sort of, uh, it's it's the potting shed, it's the worldwide potting shed of disco nerds. It's the kind of place where, where if you're having a hard time with your missus, you go and amble down to the potting shed at the end of the garden and talk to other fellow obsessives about Cliff Richard records, Cliff Richard albums that have got funky tracks on them. And what could be better and more soothing on a Thursday evening than discussing the relative merits of funky cliff richard albums <laughs> it's not healthy but you know what i think everybody needs an outlet and let's face it it's better than hardcore pornography isn't it there we go but um but aside from that but one thing i do feel there's been a real influence from the forum is is number one the building up the myth of dj harvey i feel that there's you know it was certainly the first place that i found out about harvey but especially in the uk where he wasn't playing there's so many mixes and so much discussion about Harvey on that forum. Um, can you perhaps say a little bit of that, about that? Or? Yeah, I mean, I did my best not to contribute to it. I, I really like Harvey. He's a great guy and he's a great DJ. But um, it was slight. It was at one stage really preposterous and slightly embarrassing for me that pretty much any mention of Harvey in a thread would go on for like several months and it just be it was ridiculous but um and I'm, the thing is i know he doesn't hang out on the internet so he has no idea and doesn't give a shit about it he's too busy surfing to care about threads about harvey but i think the way that harvey is is a good example of 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 less is more you know it's the same with our parties harvey doesn't promote himself and because of that this kind of aura has built up around him. Now, the reason he didn't play in the UK was because he wanted to get a green card for the US and he couldn't leave for seven years. So the myth about him not visiting places was based on a practical reason. And people seem to build it into a bit of a feeding frenzy. 
And, uh, you know, inevitably when he came back, it, it was a, a slight disappointment just because the sound wasn't that great. But it was a great night, you know, we loved it. It was a really good night. And But um, Harvey's a great DJ and he is kind of like the patron saint in a lot of ways of that kind of vibe in the UK. There were very few people playing that kind of music in the 80s as Harvey was. So, you know, I, there are worse per, per DJs to be associated with than Harvey being the kind of patron saint of DJ History's forum. So just personally, where's your head at as a DJ right now? I know you've done a compilation for Late Night Tales. Um, it's very much in the Andrew Weverall vein of slow motion kind of chug. Is that something you're very much drawn to at the moment? I have been for a while. I mean, I, I kind of been playing a similar style. It was sort of, I started playing that kind of sound more in Room 3 and Fabric like about 10 or 11 years ago. Actually, maybe even longer thinking about it. Yeah. Um, but 10 years ago, there actually weren't that many electronic records you could play really slow. It was mainly house music or, or old 80s records that you could, you know, just, there were very few records made at a tempo that you could play 102, 105, 110 BPM. Even the slowest house records were generally 115 BPM, so it was really hard. But over the last 10 years, there were a lot more people making a wider variety of tempos and and that's great because it just gives you so many more possibilities as to where you can take a night and I like building it up from slow to kind of slightly faster and slightly faster and then maybe stopping it and starting again and building it up again I just like the idea of changing the tempos around either gradually or suddenly and because it's part of the kind of the narrative of an evening you know you kind of I, I sort of think about DJing in, in 15 minute bursts. I kind of try to do everything um, timed in 15 minute segments. So at the end of every 15 minutes, there'll be something that happens, whether it's a vocal track or, or I'll stop the record and start again or, or play a hip hop record or whatever. I just kind of tend to think of things in sort of little 15 minute segments. Um, and that, slower stuff I just really I'm really into it so you still almost find it even after all these years a little bit tyrannical the kind of 124 bpm house music across the board yeah I do I, I think it's just personally I, I suppose if you've been around quite a while it, it just I just find it a bit boring really I mean I love a really good house DJ but I just um, for me personally, even when I was playing regularly in Room 1 in Fabric, I still used to play like weird records just to kind of disrupt things a little bit. Um, you know, I, I, yeah, I remember playing um, Alison Krause down at the river, that kind of gospel record at midnight once at Fabric just to see what happened. Well, bemusement mainly. But hearing that record on that sound system was just one of the great things as a DJ, you know. How could you not be thrilled by hearing that record on that sound system? To me, I was like, wow, it sounds amazing here. And I think some people genuinely got into it and got, got that I was just having a pause and then we were going to start again. Um, but yeah, I, I, I like throwing oddball records in there, even if I'm supposed to be playing house music. So just as a general point, you know, um, you've been in the game a long time. Um, did you ever think you'd still be DJing regularly out in clubs, doing festivals at, um, over the age of 50? No. <laughs> to be honest, if you'd have told me when I was 18 that, that it would be possible for me to make my living uh, being involved in music, I just, 
wouldn't even have imagined that it would be possible because all of the things that I'm doing just really would have seemed completely beyond me. Um, not because I wasn't capable of doing them, but simply because I had no idea how what one did to get yourself into a position uh, to do these jobs. I mean, I left school at 15 with no qualifications at all. So I've pretty much taught myself everything. You know, I, you know, I learnt to write by reading books, basically. Um, and the only reason I started reading was because I had really bad hay fever one year. And uh, I couldn't go out of the house for the whole of the summer of 76 because there was a heat wave and the hay fever was so bad. I just got my mum to go to the library and get me books. And that's what I did. And that's when I really started kind of getting into like reading and writing and stuff like that. I'd shown no interest in it at school at all. It's quite, I'm quite embarrassed by how bad I was at school. Um, so no, the idea that I could make a living from any of this is fantastical. I mean, it just, you know, my brother's a van driver for Iceland. You know, I, that's not what my family do. You know, they're manual workers, basically. So the idea that I've been able to make a living is, is amazing. And I'm really, you know, thrilled that I can still do that. Because in many ways, I'd say, you know, you're, you're almost in fine fettle, you know, just to, got a compilation out, a, a sold out festival recently. Is there more plans to kind of continue primarily with the DJing or, or is there more plans for books and, and other things like that coming up? Well, I've got an idea for a book, a really good, strong idea for a book, um, a more historical, very research heavy. Uh, I don't really want to talk any more about it until we've actually kind of written a, a synopsis and got a deal but um so there's a there's a plan for at least one more book um the success of our festival last weekend has led me to believe that we're going to do another one next year we were we were so blown away by not just how well it went but just the the reaction from everybody was incredible you know people have been emailing us messages as constantly since sunday saying how fantastic it was and you've got to do it again and it just really felt like a, a, a special thing to do. And Frank and I, I think, are both united in having low boredom thresholds. So we're always looking for, you know, what would it be like if we did this or shall we try doing that? And really, that's why we did. We thought we'd do a festival because we'd never done one. And what would it be like if we did one? So I think, you know, I just can't imagine stopping what I'm doing because it just is such a great... It's such a great thing to do. And, I, and I'm privileged enough that people, you know, I'll do something and then people will come to it and support it. And that's, you know, I'm blo constantly blown away by that. I'm just really, really grateful that people think that the things I do are worth supporting. <laughs>